Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the UX Research Rundown. My name is Henrik Matson. I am the CEO of Lookback and I'm also the host for this show. Uh, with me today I have Josh Williams who is the uh, Director of UX Research uh, at Indeed uh, and he also has a, an interesting background in a bunch of different uh, companies. So uh, I'm sure we're going to have another great conversation uh, about engagement, stakeholder engagement with research and kind of how to bring people along on the journey. But as always, as per ancient tradition here in season two, uh, we will start by uh, getting uh, Josh's uh, background and kind of origin story so that we know a little bit about where all of this uh, is coming from and kind of uh, another story of how to get into research uh, leadership. So uh, welcome to the show and uh, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Cool. So um, could you start by just kind of giving us uh, your version of like, how did you get into research? When did you find out that you were, you know, a researcher? And how, how did you kind of lead up to the point where, where you are today? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have to go back many, many moons ago. But really, um, you know, I've always been a curious person, always interested in how particularly humans think and perceive the world. And I kind of started out wanting to be a physician and I happened to do research in undergrad that really, I veered off of the, the doctor path, the MD path to the PhD path. And um, I got my PhD in cognitive neuroscience. And towards the end, I realized I maybe didn't want to be in academia. I think a lot of folks that come from academia industry follow that same path, wanted to have more tangible impact and those types of things. So as I, kind of was leading academia, I actually was really interested in data science. Um, I really fit well with what I was doing um, from a linguistic standpoint. I could work with, you know, AI and do language processing and that type of thing. But I realized that I was going to miss the human experience a little bit. And so I kind of actually happened upon UX research by accident. Um, I knew about this company Bose uh, because uh, every Christmas or holiday I would visit my um, husband's family and we would always pass by this big company on a mountain. And I was like, I'm going to just see what jobs they have there. And I actually Googled um, research audiologist or researcher because it fit really well with my background. And a user researcher job popped up too. And I read the job description. I was like, I can totally do that. And I applied and somehow I got that job. Um, and that's kind of the history. I started at Bose um, as a senior researcher, kind of worked my way up as a lead researcher on their innovation line, um, and then have kind of subsequently moved from there and, and now a director of UX research. So, um, and it fits so well with what I love to do. I love teaching folks how to do research and, and just bringing people along and grounding them in user experiences. And I'm sure we'll talk about it, but I always see researchers as connectors and as shepherds. And, and that's what I love to do is bring people along that path. And I think it even connects to me being really in love with being a teacher as an academic as well. Oh, interesting. A lot of that resonates with me. I, I also have a background in academia and then kind of wanted to do something else. And I love teaching too. So I, I, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, super interesting. Well, I'm just going to jump straight in um, with, you know, so what, what I'm interested in in this podcast, and it seems like we can just do an endless amount of episodes because everyone is bringing something to the table and kind of, you know, this is a big, big problem. But it's, 
whether it's teaching or whether it's kind of making connections or or whatever it is, this this whole kind of challenge of bringing stakeholders along into the journey. And when you know, and stakeholders perhaps is not the right word, but like there are a lot of people that would benefit uh, from part like engaging with research, whether it's an insight after the fact or whether it's live observation or whatever it is. But when I speak to researchers, which I do a lot because we we have a research tool, right? So we research researchers. It's pretty clear to me that the the experiences are very different in different companies. It depends on kind of what culture uh, the company has. It depends on the re- le- like maturity level of the, of the research uh, team, et cetera, and how everyone works together. So like from your perspective, if I'm kind of saying that's what that's what we're interested in. Like, what comes to mind? Like, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the your experiences um, that you found kind of interesting or difficult? Or mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Every company I've been at has had a very different research culture. I think about when I was at Bose. Most people don't know this, but Bose is like owned by MIT, so there's a lot of PhDs and just generally they see themselves as a research company that like sells audio equipment to pay for research. And so that culture was quite different where folks might not join sessions, but they're very engaged once the data does come out. And that changes the way that you think about your deliverables. Um, Cause you can be maybe in the weeds or pretty scientific because folks are going to take the time to engage with that. Um, on the other hand, I've been at, you know, companies um, even like Indeed, where folks really want to be connected with the user and ground themselves in the user, and um, but they're also really busy and, and they want to get that higher level kind of feedback. So you have to think about what is the ROI on this deliverable or on that insight that I can provide so that I can affect change without having to require a lot of time or effort. Um, and so those because those cultural differences, I've seen it change uh, from time to time. But one of the things that I think is always important is really around the engagement of any stakeholder team with the research team. If you don't have that you know, foundation of trust or respect, it doesn't matter how you want to share insights or what the form of that deliverable is, it's not gonna you know, resonate at all. And so I think bringing along folks as part of the research journey is building and earning trust as well and knowing that we are here to enable decisions, not tell you whether you're right or wrong or, you know, less kind of territorial aspects of being a researcher. Um, and I think that has really served us well. So I really train researchers and, and have us all think about how can we be shepherds or be folks that guide, but don't dictate. Um, how can we still be advocates, but not dictators, right? And, and I think that's been really helpful in getting that foundation. And then there's lots of different ways that we might implement bringing stakeholders along. Interesting. So, so what are the, how is that received? Do people like immediately get it and, and, and like it or, or what's your experience there? Yeah. For the most part, um, I I think indeed is quite an exception. It's such a great place and so user centric, but I would say, um, uh, most places, it's not immediately seen. Um, a lot of times folks, and, and, and rightly so, we all kind of own the, the user experience. And so um, oftentimes um, folks will say, well, I already know this data or I know this. And 
um, why do I need this research or why do I need a research team or a researcher, particularly in, you know, organizations where there's just one researcher supporting. And what I've seen be really effective is kind of calling out inconsistencies or knowledge gaps without being on the nose about it. Um, asking questions that really challenge the perceptions or the maybe the misconceptions that team members have and being ready to back it up with some data or with a solution. Um, and if you do this in the right way, and you know, it, there's a little bit of politicking, a little bit of cultural things you have to take into consideration, you open the eyes of stakeholders to see the value of what you do. And that is like the first step in earning trust. Before you even do any deliverables, knowing that you're knowledgeable about the product space and about the business and why we should care about what we care about and how the user journey dovetails into what they care about, right? PMs often care about moving business metrics um, more so. They're incentivized to be more uh, focused on business metrics than necessarily user experience. They should be correlated at the end of the day, but they're not necessarily uh, incentivized to care about the user experience at a particular level. And so if you can speak their language, you can move them in that direction. And so researchers often, particularly if you're new to the company, or if research is new to the company, generally not trying to rush to do a study, but taking time to do almost an ethnography of your business and the people within the business is going to pay dividends because you're going to know how to speak their language. You're going to know what they care about, and then you can approach them in ways that build bridges. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I, I, when I speak to research leaders, I hear this kind of trade-off constantly about like you you have a job to do you need to produce studies you need to produce these these results but you also need to do all of this trust building and you need to kind of slow down especially if there's a low uh kind of perhaps if you're the first researcher there or if you're just building out the practice you it does take time so and that's that's so interesting to me because i i've seen that in my own experience too and uh, you know how this gradually happens and then when you're at the when you go through that journey it's so obvious that this is like the way to do it, right? And and it's, but it, when you're at the beginning of that journey, uh, it can be so stressful. Oh, I don't have time. I need to produce things right now, etc. Like, and I always feel a little bit reluctant to to give that advice. You know, just just trust it. <laughs> you know, it's gonna work. Like, have you seen uh, what has been your experience in kind of building that up gradually? And what are some kind of advice for people who are starting to doubt the process or starting to like want to rush it a bit? Yeah. You know, one of the things I try to remember researchers and typically more junior researchers is that the unit of measure for a researcher is not a study. I I just don't believe that our job is to just do studies and and conduct research. It's just fundamentally not how I perceive what researchers are. Uh, As I mentioned, we connect dots, we triangulate. Sometimes you don't need to do any research in order to help unlock a decision that is still user-centric. And there's plenty of data that might already exist. And so I don't think that we should be or we should encourage just producing studies for the sake of doing it. Um, oftentimes, for those new researchers, I would argue that you should not aim to do a perfect study. That's kind of a misnomer, but like your first study should be actually quite impactful. And if it takes a little bit of time to do that, fine. Um, It is challenging if you are in an environment where you don't have research leadership. 
you know, I can advocate for my team and say, listen, that person's not doing that study. I don't think it has the right ROI. I'm going to have them focus on this. And that gives them some runway. But if you know you have a 30, 60, 90 day plan and in the first 90 days, you're supposed to deliver a study and you're not doing that, that can be a challenge. And so if you have to do a study right away, think about what is going to be the most impactful or at least what is going to be the most buttoned up bulletproof study that you can do because if no one can also like poke a lot of holes in things it also builds trust in that other way because that's what everyone they're going to do on your first study is try to like discredit you if there's not a huge like ux maturity and so you have to do a study that's going to prevent that and in that way going back to the theme of this you know conversation bringing them along to show one you know what it takes to recruit or what it takes to do certain aspects of the study, why it takes the time that it takes um, so that they have that visibility and that when you deliver the final result, it's not a surprise. That's the other thing about building trust. You don't want to surprise folks with the results. And so particularly if you're in this more adversarial or low UX maturity environment, you want to bring them along the way so that they know what you're going to say by the time you give them a deliverable. Um, and they feel like they kind of already, if you can, it's even better if you can get them to think about the solution or the answer before you say it. Because then they feel like they own kind of the output or the outcome. And that also kind of gives you some more kind of leverage or uh, trust as well. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh... I totally, I've seen that also. And, and it's interesting because when we, what I've been researching kind of how, how stakeholders observe research, the obvious thing that kind of jumps out is that they get to see the user struggle with the product or something like that, right? And that's a very strong experience. Like it leaves its mark. It's kind of hard to walk away from that and be unaffected. Uh, but one thing that I hear from researchers also sometimes is like, I'm glad that they can watch me work because they kind of understand what's involved with and like that this is a real thing that is actually hard and, and you know, I'm actually doing a good job at it. So uh, so it's interesting that you say, like, bring them along on kind of how hard it is to do all the study and everything. Uh, I think that's very uh, that's very wise. But I was wondering, it's interesting what you say with the how, how to share. Another thing that researchers tell me is like there's this reluctance to share to share information along the way because pe they're worried that people will kind of, a designer will just like, oh, the research is done. I'm going to take this insight and I'm going to go build this thing. And like, no, 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 wait, it's not done. Like we have more stuff. But you seem to be saying like the opposite. And, and I think you're right. But I was wondering if you could kind of expand a little bit on that, like the effect that that has and the trust building and everything kind of, and how to take that leap. Because I think a lot of people are kind of holding back. They They don't want it to be, they think to impress someone, you need to kind of finish it. It needs to be finished work. It needs to be like a conclusion that you can underpin. So there's a contradiction there. Like, could you? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things with this. I think one is allowing designers to ideate throughout the research uh, cycle is a good thing um, because they might generate more questions that they have that you can quickly iterate on your own research design and get them answers. And so you might ultimately get more insights than you had expected throughout that process. But it also, because for instance, to take the designer example, because the world that they live in and the, the thing that they're trying to produce is a tangible design. If they're doing that while, you know, you're conducting research or delivering insights, 
they're inherently feeling more connected to the data. They're, the, it's not an observer anymore. It is an active participant because the way that they do their job is to design. And so they're doing that while you're doing research. And so that helps ground that a lot more. I also think that often, you know, decisions rarely are irreversible. Uh, I think at, a, you know, indeed we are at a Amazon, we call them one-way doors. There's rarely a one-way door situation. And, and, and therefore, if a decision is made during your research sessions and you come to find a little bit more nuance or something along the way, it is now to say, you know, you saw that, but look, here's some additional data that we came uh, came across, and how might we, you know, change that decision to be a little bit more aligned with the data? And I don't think that that conversation is going to be that difficult because you've already gotten them bought in into there's value in your data, right? They've taken an action on your data, so they already bought into it. Now, when you provide additional data, they should be open to making that change. And if not, right, the whole name of the game is I, uh, I uh, iterate, right? So if we need to iterate, fine, that's part, and that's going to make it better because the next time we approach this topic, we're probably going to get better insights and, and have better output as well. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. So when you started by saying kind of that's <laughs> It's important to do like a, a, should I call it like a first good impression of research rather than like producing a bunch of, uh, not a perfect study, but like a good first impression. So this seems to be one part of it. Are there any other things like, what does that mean? Like setting up your first study for success? What are some other things to think about there? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it goes back to this idea of if you're just producing for the sake of producing, no one's going to care anyway. It, it's like an empty promise, like, you know, and so when I say setting yourself up for success, it's really tying whatever you do to something that's meaningful to whatever stakeholder that you're creating. You know, it's really easy as a good starting place to look at most companies have, have like OKRs or KPIs or big strategic initiatives. If you could start there, you know, it's already by definition prioritized, right? And, 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 and folks should, by definition, care about that thing because they're being measured against it as well. And so whatever it is, you need to try to connect what research you're doing to a meaningful string. And particularly if you can find out what that thing is for your stakeholders, that's going to be really important. Uh, even if you could execute six studies and like test a whole bunch of, you know, do evaluative research and move a whole bunch of designs forward. It's, it's going to have just a low impact uh, and a low ROI. And so it's really about um, getting, like I said, and it doesn't have to be months to do a whole like full ethnography. It should be pretty salient. You know, you can always ask your manager, what does the business care about right now? In your first one-on-one, -on -one, you know, what are you working on with a PM and like, what do you care about? What business metric are you trying to move? And really thinking, you know, what knowledge gaps might there be? Where are they missing? What are their blind spots? And how can I kind of elucidate that and, and, and fill in that picture for them a little bit more? And after a couple conversations, particularly with your whole product team, you should be able to find what that is. Um, so I don't know if that's super tangible uh, for kind of what you're looking for, but I think that's really the common theme. Find what people care about and what keeps them up at night. I hear that a lot too. Ask them in your first one-on-one, -on -one, what's keeping you up at night? And uh, that might be a good starting point to say, if I could solve that problem, if I could make them sleep a little bit easier tonight, 
that's going to get a lot of buy-in and, and, you know, move the needle a little bit. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, I, I think it is tangible. It's like, uh, it's over, over the course of this podcast series, you know, and uh, I, I've learned so much about all the different ways that people do this and everything, but there are also some of these common themes that are, you know, you, 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 you kind of jump into some of them here one is like you know start early with almost discovery you know it's like you start early with your stakeholders and ask them what do you care about right and that you bring them along you don't wait until the work is finished you don't show up like you know later with a big statistically significant report and you go like look (laughs) but you kind of involve them and everything and and i think what i'm um but but I got some feedback from uh, from someone who just got into the field where it's like yeah that's that sounds lovely I want all of that but like what are some of the kind of how does it work in practice right but I think what you're saying there adds a lot of a lot of meat to it One, another thing that I'd like to kind of explore a little bit in that is who do you Let's say that, you know, we're in the situation now, you've just started, perhaps the research maturity is perhaps a bit low, they haven't really done this before, we're building this trust and everything. In your experience, are there are there particular functions or kind of personality types that you should try to kind of target? Are there some like first allies that are easier than others? Yeah, I mean... I think generally your closest UX peers, whether that's content or design, are always going to be your probably uh, biggest supporters. They kind of get it. They're already bought into it. And so particularly if you have a designer or someone that has a really good relationship with their PM or their science partner or their engineering partner, even starting there, if you're in a low maturity organization, you're probably one of the few researchers, which means you probably support a large scope. Find the scope, find the team of your broad scope that is going to be, you know, your biggest advocate or or at least the most open. Don't start with the hardest problem. Don't start with that team Um, because they're going to get jealous. Once you start focusing all of your time on a particular team that's getting good results, people are going to start asking for your, your support as well. And so, you know, go where the water flows freely first. Use your UX partners as advocates, um, and uh, I think that's really helpful. Oftentimes, I find that the <laughs> the PMs that are so focused on business metrics, or they have a really good relationship with their data science or product science partners, are also most likely going to be open. And you have to then probably sell how does qualitative and quantitative data matter into building a full story. You know, I have a, a pretty common saying of iterate and triangulate. Like when all else fails, iterate and triangulate. And you can lean in on the triangulation piece and say, you really care about product metrics and all of this. Let me show you how the qualitative data can tell you the how and the why, because you have really good understanding of the what and the when. And if you can kind of do that, then most likely that's your first advocate because now they're already a data-driven individual that can then advocate for the importance of qual. You have to be careful. There are some folks that discount qual so heavily because they're like, well, quantitative data is you know ecologically valid. It is the thing that matters and I don't care about the qual. You're not going to want to try to really ingratiate yourself with that person to start with, um, because while they're data driven, they already have a bias against the qual data, and that's a roadblock or a barrier for you. Right. So, so what do you do in those situations? 
I mean, if, if that's the only person you can work with, I think, you know, like I said, triangulating and saying, oh, let me then work with the data scientists to understand that space. How can I then bring qual data and round out a picture? Oftentimes the data scientists will be pretty forthcoming to say, you know, I don't know why this is, but we're seeing this pattern. And you're like, oh, I could probably figure out why that is. And if you can then figure out why something's happening, you've already shown immediate value. And again, if you even just present that to the data science person, they now become an advocate to say, oh, well, we need qual to round out the edges here. Let's bring in user research. And if you have design and science coming at both ends, the PM is gonna kind of like have to accept it to a certain point. Yeah, no, this is good advice. I mean, one thing I've seen, um, I was talking to one of my designers the other day and, uh, you know, we worked together for a long time and we used to, you know, in the beginning when you don't know so much and you're kind of, you don't have, we didn't really have a research team and stuff, pretty comfortable kind of guessing <laughs> pretty much what we were going to, well, okay, we have to bet on this. And the other day we were having a conversation and I was like, uh, so do we do this? Uh, what do we do here? He's like, um, I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't had time to review the research yet. And I was like, okay, that's like the end of the advocacy journey. It's like, no one is in the room. No one's looking. The research isn't there. It's just him and me. And like, he won't give me an answer because he hasn't seen the research yet. And that's like, that's so powerful. But it starts with this patient work that you're that you're talking about. So everyone who's going into research, uh, listen to listen to Josh. This is very good. Um, okay, let's move forward a little bit in the or and you can also like if you have other things that are more interesting to say than whatever my questions are kind of trying to pull out of you, uh, please interrupt me at any point. But um, if we move forward a little bit in this journey, so kind of you've arrived, you've found your kind of first uh, advocates that you're starting to work with, you've done a first kind of research study and everything, and like people are starting to uh, appreciate this and they trust you and all that stuff. Like what are some of the, what are the next challenges uh, that you encounter as you move along on this journey? Yeah, I, a couple. I think one is prioritization. Um, and I think this even goes back to building advocates is don't try to do everything, right? We've talked about that, like doing a whole bunch of research, be mindful about the research that you do. Oftentimes now demand is probably, you know, like I said, this jealous team over here wants you and this this PM wants you. Uh, and, and it's about prioritization. And that's going to be your biggest challenge. What frameworks or how do you think about what's going to be the most impactful? Because at the end of the day, there will always be infinite questions. It doesn't matter how well you think you know your users or your product, there will always be infinite questions. And so it is up to the researcher to help guide folks to say, I hear you. I hear that this is what you want, but can we, I'm listening to the business and I am thinking that this is probably a more important use of our time because there are times when I think we shouldn't be doing research. Use your subject matter expertise. You will be 80%, 90% right. It's totally fine. What are those 10% of times or those areas where the risk is really high if we don't have high certainty? Or where is the knowledge gap so big that we can't make a decision in the absence of that? And if we can use that kind of framework of risk versus unknown, we can then help prioritize. And then you will also see that inherently that means you're doing the highest impact work and um, you can continue to sustain that uh, even if you're turning away certain teams or certain projects. Right. This brings me to um, something I've been thinking about lately. I used to think that from the tooling perspective, like our job was to help teams find insights, right? And you can imagine that like research leadership is, that's also what it's about, right? 
but I started thinking about it differently. And it kind of when you were talking now, uh, it, it struck me that it, it doesn't really scale very well, that kind of research leadership. It's, it's more about building. Now I think about tooling from my perspective, but also research leadership is about creating a culture and a way of working together that will help people generate their own insights from research like what do you think about that idea and is that like a potential solution to kind of scaling yourself um as a leader that was a very leading question but <laughs> yes i mean i think <laughs> i mean I, th- I i i think so i mean it kind of verges on the topic of democratization which i don't necessarily want i want to go down that path but i think in general it is about a culture of just curiosity and knowing when you need the when you need the tools that you need. Like if you're a product person, when do I need to pull a research lever? When do I need to pull a data science lever? When do I want to make my own decisions? You know, and thinking about it that way um, is really important because we can't answer all those questions. And so I try to say, you know, like I mentioned, we're enabling decisions. How do you best use us? to enable those decisions. We don't expect you as a PM to even know everything there is to know about your product because oftentimes that doesn't scale. The bigger your scope is or the bigger your product is, you can't know all of it. It's when do you lean on the experts around you in order to make those decisions or to uh, uncover those insights? And how can we enable that self-discovery too? whether it is through a great repository or deliverables that are pretty evergreen, that are easy to access and consume, whatever that looks like, how do we enable those folks to do it, even if they're not conducting the research themselves? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, There's something here about how... If you get this right, everything that you've been talking about, and this kind of goes to the core of the theme of the podcast with the engagement, right? If you get this right, every research leader I've talked to who, where I feel like, okay, they got it right, they describe this situation where you very quickly become a scarce resource that have to like say no a lot, right? And that's a that's a big scale problem. And and as a research leader thinking about like teaching. Uh, individual contributors or like other researchers coming in as you start scaling because the the you know you hire people because you want to do more research it's like do you do do you teach them to like deliver insights or do you teach them to build engagement because the big the building of the engagement will kind of you, you know what I'm like what what is the future of research because it's a real problem for our field that we have it's great that that uh, demand for research is growing, but I mean, pe- we're, we can only educate people that fast. There aren't enough researchers. So, like, what's the what will the future look like here for for this stuff? Right. Yeah, I think um, I think the enablement piece is a big piece. If I'm being completely honest, I don't staff my researchers as high as the demand asks. Even if you gave me an endless talent pool, I probably would create. Uh, scarcity. Like I, I want that to happen. Um, and I don't want researchers to feel really empowered to answer every question that comes across their table. I just, it's not a good use of our time. And so I don't even staff that way. And so because of that, I think it's about enablement, being a thought partner and allowing, you know, folks to discover insights themselves and making sure we empower that. Um, and, and let experts make expert decisions on the things that are not risky and don't matter. Um, 
you know, we have a rapid research team here. There's a lot of places out. That's one solution to this problem. Let's have a rapid research team where they can come in, do some quick studies. And even that can have, I think, sometimes downstream detrimental effects because then we want to evaluate and test the smallest little bits of our experience. And if we're empowering, you know, designers to make really good decisions based on, um, you know, standard practices, we don't always have to test everything. Um, and so it's about enabling access to insights, you know, bringing them along the journey and just finding the right stakeholders, the right partners to help unlock that and making sure that everyone's aware of that and can be advocates for this. You know, we see that here. We produce I don't even know what the number is, like hundreds of reports, like a month or something at Indeed, because we have like 160 researchers here. And it's about not coming to research to find the data, but can you ask a random other PM and they'll know about it and making sure that there's a connection or connectivity or web of information across everyone at the company. Love it. Um, well, We've reached that point where we're running out of time. I mean, I think this is uh, could have, could have kept going uh, a long time here. It's so important, I think, to just like how to kind of how to build this up and how to trust this process because it's not an intuitive process. When I hear research leaders talking about that, it makes so much sense after the fact. But like, if you're starting out and you don't know these things, it's like uh, I would have been scared. So, um, as a final question, what what are some of the what are some of the things that you think we will see? Where, where do you think engagement is is going with research? Because, you know, you've been in this industry for a while now, and, and I'm sure you've seen, we haven't talked so much about it, but I'm sure you've seen this kind of, these trends come and go and, and, and you know, a lot of things changing. Like, what is the place of research in 2023, 2024? And kind of like, what do you think the big, what's keeping you up at night as a research leader? You know, what are you, what are you thinking about? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things that um, worry me or that I think about. One of the things is the rapid growth is, you know, the incon it's not necessarily a bad thing, but inconsistency is of how UX research is implemented across multiple companies, which means that everyone's perception of what research means is vastly different. And because we don't have a standard or consistent experience, it means that particularly as people change jobs, that creates sometimes a lot of friction. And so how might we come to a point in which like, it's a, not a standard dies. I don't really want it to go that direction, but how do we have a pretty consistent experience and have less researchers trying to figure it out on their own. And then that creates its own, not set of problems, but its own kind of environment and its own kind of expectations. And I think the other part that I think about is how do we up-level research? I think, and I've said this in lots of other areas that I think of researchers as strategists. And I think a lot of companies where they always start out as researchers, as evaluators, you know, they do a lot of design, evaluative research. And I want us to be at the point where where do we have the, the clout, the buy-in to uh, direct the business and use data in support of that? And how do we become advisors? And that's where I would love to see research go. Um, and, and so those, I think, are the two things that I would love that I think would unlock a lot of potential of the data and research expertise is both in terms of consistency, as well as being a more strategic partner. Mm, mm. I know I said it was the last question, but this was so interesting. So I'm going to ask a follow-up. So 
like are those like related or or they're just kind of two things that you see as important or do you think that you, we need this kind of not standardization but we need to kind of up the game there in order to take that last step or i think so i think so because if you're stuck in this like we're just doing evaluative design research or you know whatever it is you can't level up. It's kind of like the pinnacle, maybe this is how I see it now. It's like the pinnacle last step of what is a really good and effective research team is to be product strategists. Um, you can't get there if you're stuck with the expectation that every design that comes across your table, you're going to do a usability study on it. Um, and that shift from evaluative to generative um, even then needs a, an additional shift. And, and I think oftentimes we make those dichotomies or those separations based on method. And we have to kind of elevate ourselves that methods are tools, not a way of working. And I think we get stuck in, well, we do these certain kinds of methods and that's what our job is. And it's no, our job is to answer questions and unlock decisions, which tools are we gonna do to use that? And so they are really strongly connected and I think as your UX maturity grows, you kind of move that direction, but you can still get stuck in that, I don't know, local maxima of being a really good research team, but that hasn't been made it to the strategy piece yet. Right. Well, love it. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and sharing all of this stuff. I wish we had more time, but c'est la vie. Uh, you know, uh, have, a, have a good time and hope to see you around. And uh, for everyone who's listening, uh, thanks for following the podcast. And uh, yeah, uh, happy researching. Mm-hmm.